All right, please come on in, everybody. We will go ahead and get started. And you hear all the noise out there. So what I envision happening is one day the rapture occurs. And then there we are. And we're in heaven and we're looking around we're going, oh man, so-and-so's not here. And then somebody goes, oh no, they'll be here in 10 minutes. That's this group out here. Now that's, I'm saying that's this group out here. Those of, those of them that come in within 10 minutes, I'm thinking will eventually be part of the rapture. Those that are beyond 10 minutes, no hope, no hope for them. Hey, Diane, you meet, you're meeting Lewis? I know, you were, we heard you as you were coming in. <laughs> Diane, Lewis, Lewis, Diane, good to have you both. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Let me uh, make some announcements quickly, and then we'll get into this penultimate, yeah, penultimate uh, lesson, second to the last lesson of our series, Worry-Free Decision-Making. You should have some notes. Uh, the guys were doing a good job of distributing those when you uh, came in. The packet of four pages that we distributed last week, we're going to finish that today, and then they were giving out an additional page as well that we'll talk about. By way of announcements, this afternoon at 2.30, is our next congregational meeting. It's by Zoom. And yesterday we sent out an email with the Zoom link for that. And all of you that are members of our church should have received that. And we'll look forward to seeing you at 2.30. Tomorrow night, ladies, is the next heart-to-heart -heart meeting here, 7 o'clock. In two weeks, we have a couple of things uh, going on. Uh, two weeks from today, during our worship service, the entirety of that service will be devoted to the Lord's table communion. And then that afternoon at five o'clock is our next baptism. And it is just the next few days. If you're someone who has procrastinated letting us know that you're interested in baptism, we got to know in the next couple of days since it is only two weeks away. But you can still do that. You can, before you leave today, go to the Welcome Center in the lobby, get the one-page baptism application, fill that out, turn that into them, and then we'll go from there. So we have baptism two weeks from today. And with our baptisms, we always make that a celebration. Part of the celebration is a dinner, and for the dinner, we ask your assistance. If you can bring an item or two, if you go to our website, there's a banner about the baptism celebration. If you click on that, then you can register for what item or items you're able to bring, and please indicate the quantity, how much of that you are, uh, your particular food item you're able to bring. So the baptism is two weeks from today, and also that day, we're having our next four-week newcomer's orientation. That'll be during this hour. Uh, it'll start in two weeks, and then for the next three weeks after that, the newcomer's orientation. Those of you then that are new to our church, if you've never taken the newcomer's orientation, I encourage you to do that. We offer it three times a year to help folks determine if this is where God would have them join and grow and serve. This is informational to help you to do that, no pressure. 
So if you fit that category, just plan on being in the class two weeks from today. I lead that class. We give you a notebook of material, and we'll be in the classroom, out those doors, and across the hall. And what's going to happen then with this class, since I'm going to be doing that class for those four weeks? We have uh, two of our guys teaching during that time. Uh, one of our guys is going to do two weeks. Another is going to do the other two weeks. So you guys will be well-fed during those uh, spiritually uh, for those uh, four weeks. And then we'll come back together uh, in January. And I say in January because Christmas Day falls on Sunday this year which means we're only having one hour, our Christmas worship service of that day at 10.30. So this class will not be happening that day. And then the following week, New Year's then, was on Sunday, same thing, 10.30. So it will be that uh, second Sunday of January that we'll come back together, all of us in the auditorium here. All right, let me review as quickly as I can. If you were to, in the notes that we gave out last week, page 21. We left off on page 23. We'll get to that fairly quickly, but if you go to the first page, page 21, we have copies of that. Does everybody have it? Anybody need a copy of page 21? We got one over here, guys, over on this side, way on the other end. Anybody else? We got some up front here. You guys need uh, page 21? You do? Okay. Here. Anybody else? Over here, David, you need one? You know, I... So, Jerry, you got... David, do you need a packet? You have it. You're good. Okay. Anybody else? All right. Thanks, ushers, for getting that stuff uh, distributed. So, in the middle of page 21... I talked last week about various ways that we relate to the world. And fairly quickly, let me remind you of that. That the context of both life and character decisions is the world. So we're talking about how to make decisions. And the context in which we make those decisions both for life and the development and protection of character, is the world. The context of both life and character decisions is the world. Now, what do I mean by life versus character decisions? By life decisions, I'm talking about the decisions that all of us have to make about uh, school. What am I going to do for a career? And if I'm going to go to school, if I need to go to school for that, where's that going to be? And what am I going to pursue? Is it going to be a trade school? Is it going to be an apprenticeship? Is it going to, those kinds of things. Uh, so what career am I going to pursue? A spouse. That's a, li- that's a life decision. Am I going to pursue a, a spouse to partner with me in life? Location. Where am I going to live? Am I going to, am I going to buy a house? Am I going to rent? Uh, am I going to live with my parents for a while? These are life decisions. And the context of those life decisions is the world. And also the context of character decisions. The context of life, decisions like that, and character decisions is the world. By character decisions, I mean what kind of activities, what kinds of things should I engage in? Is it okay for me to go to the bar, you know, every so often? 
Is it okay for me to, you know, have a drink every now and then? Every now and then maybe I'll get drunk, but not much. And I don't hurt anybody when I do. Actually, this is not a confession, I want you to know. <laughs> this is like you. I'm talking like you, okay? But, you know, those, these, are, these are character decisions. Should I do this? Should I go there? Um, other kinds of character decisions are entertainment. What kind of entertainment should I engage in for character reasons? Is this going to build my character? Is it going to retard my, my spiritual character? Should I do this? You know, are concerts my thing? Are cons should I go to that concert with that performer? Should I, if I don't go to the concert, should I watch, watch on TV? So there's, there's these activities. Should I engage in entertainment? There's how I should use my time, my talent, and my treasure. And I'm putting these under character as well. Just overall, how am I going to make use of my time? Make decisions about the best use of my time, the best use of the gifting that God has given me, my talent, which all of us have in one way or another. And then what God has entrusted to us in terms of treasure. Now, those last three, time, talent, and treasure, overlap with the life categories. Because am I going to buy a house or am I going to rent? That has something to do with the stewardship of the treasure, right? Uh, how am I going to spend my time? What kind of career am I going to get? Am I going to pursue a job that's going to require every moment of every waking moment that I have? Now, maybe you have no choice. You just get, you got to make a living. you got to put food on the table. And if that's the only job you have, well, then you got to do what you got to do. But if it's a discretionary choice, am I going to pursue something as a workaholic that that's just going to be my life? And if you, if you pursue that, well, then that's going to affect your ability to engage in the mission that I've been talking about for all of these, all of these weeks. So again, the context of both life and character decisions is, on page 21, the world. And specifically, it's a fallen world that we are, are in. And that term, the world, can be problematic because it can be ambiguous because it's used a couple of ways. When we think of the world, sometimes we, we think of the earth, everything on earth, everything in the world. And that's one way it's, it's used. And so the context in which I have to live my life, you have to live your life, and then make our decisions, both life decisions and character decisions, is where we are. We're on this earth, we're in this world. That's true. The Bible most often uses the word world in terms of a system, the world system that is so organized, in fact, the most often used Greek word that's translated world is cosmos, and it means arrangement. So this is the fallen arrangement of humanity that does not acknowledge God, does not include God, and very often is anti-God. So you've got the world used in both of those ways, physical location, the earth, where I am, and then it's the, it's the system that 
people in their fallen state, which is natural for all of us then, pursue without acknowledging the Creator and pursuing it for His ends. So that means I've got to relate the context of my decisions, your decisions, is I've got to relate to where I am and what it's like. Where I am, the earth here, this world, the location, and what that place, this place, is like. And that's the context that all of us then are called to to make our decisions. The reason I had this on page 21 and we went over it last week is because that's a challenge. Notice Roman numeral one, I call it the problem of living in a fallen world. Because that's a real challenge for us then. Okay, I'm here living at this place and also you could add that this time and it's a fallen world. I'm, I'm surrounded by sinful people, sinful arrangements that are give no acknowledgement to God and what it is we were all put here originally for, and I'm trying to go against the grain. As a Christian, you find yourself often going against the grain for that reason. So that's thus the problem of living in a fallen world. And you can compound the problem. It's already a problem <laughs> just by virtue of you being a Christian in a fallen world. That's a, that's a challenge. But you can compound the problem if you think that your condition, what you are like, and whether or not your condition is going to be better, you're com you'll compound the, compound the problem if you think that your condition is going to be better if you get a different location. To put it another way, if you think your primary problem is outside of you, then you're going to compound the problem. It's already a challenge. But you may come to the conclusion, and lots of people have, what I need to do is get around better people. What I need is a different job. The reason I'm angry all the time is because of my job. I mean, my boss at my job. It would be an okay job if I didn't have my boss. It would be an okay job if I was the boss. And, and here's the problem with that. Um, I, when I did computer work for 20 years and went from place to place, six months here, a year there, doing consulting, I saw lots of places, and everybody thought that. Everybody thought their boss was a jerk. I mean, pretty much, if, very few exceptions. Everybody's boss is a jerk. And the solution to your boss being a jerk is you becoming the boss, which means what is everybody going to think about you? You just become the jerk now for everybody else. I mean, that's the way most of us, unfortunately, think. And so we find ourselves always thinking about having a different job and a different boss or being in a better climate. I mean, the problem for me is my location. It's outside of me. And you're compounding the problem, which is already a challenge, if you think that way. And you've got number two. Look at number two, middle of page 21. You can take an approach that says, I'm not in the world, but I'm also not of the world. So I'm not of the world, meaning, okay, I'm a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. But in order to do that, I can't hang around with these other people. 
I mean, they're, they're all just a mess and they make life a mess for me. And so I got to get out of this. I got to separate myself from this. Lots of ways that people have done it. Israel did it, the nation of Israel. They were, and God wanted to show them that their problem was really an inside job. So he had them separated from the world around them. And, you know, how did that work out? Not very. And our versions of that are many. I'm going to say this. I thought maybe I shouldn't say it, but fools rush in. And, and I don't know who, we used to homeschool. My wife and I, and my wife really homeschooled our girls for several years. It was a really great thing for us. Kim did a great job with it. And it was good for our family. And we did it because it made good sense for our family for several years. And then our girls uh, went to a conventional school, the Christian school after that. And Pastor Larry's girls had all three over the years. They had Christian school, they had some home school, and they had some public school. So represented in the leadership of our church, we've had all, we've had all of these, and we've, we've never told anybody this is the, the one that you need to do, and I'm not doing that now. With homeschooling, though, and this is the part I was, I'm treading carefully on, I did notice that with a lot of homeschoolers, they think if I separate myself from all of those bad people, my kids will be good. And I started to see that, and I said to Kim, you know, when you go to the homeschooling convention, because there are these conventions, and you buy the materials and the curriculum and all that, and, it's, and again, it can be really done well. And Kim did it really well. Be careful about that. Be careful about that mindset. Because our kids' problem, all of our kids' problem, including my daughter's, including me, including yours, our biggest problem is not first outside of us. It's inside of us. Now, as a parent, I don't just throw my kid out there. So controlled exposure, I think I mentioned that last week, is that wise way to do this. But lose the idea that your biggest problem with your job, with your education, that your biggest problem is what's outside of you. The Bible teaches very clearly and relentlessly that our problem is inside. And if you see that it's an inside problem then, now as you try to make decisions, you are going to go to a source outside of you to help you do that. Why would you, need, why would you go to a source outside of you? Because you've got an inside problem. You need something and or someone outside of you to help you with this. And that someone is the Lord God, and that something is God's Word. And so we go to that, and we don't solve our primary problem, which is an, exter which is an internal problem, by dealing with external, primarily external issues. Lots of ways that people have done that. I give the dangers of those on the next few pages, and then we came to, if you'll turn to page 23. Top of page 23, principles of decision-making, and we need, and I suggest that we need to find out as we make life and character decisions what's right with it. 
Instead of asking the wrong question, what's wrong with it, ask the right question, what's right with it? Now, you can see your problem and my problem, our tendency to ask the wrong question and go at it the wrong way, you can see that tendency in at least three ways. Let me give you those three ways. One is in the way we pursue our reasons. First one is we pursue our reasons, our rationale, the wrong way. Most of the time, our reason for making a choice is there's nothing wrong with it. And I'm suggesting to you there's already something wrong with it because that was the wrong question to try to answer. That there's nothing wrong with it. Remember that our purpose, I mean our uber purpose over everything is to glorify God. You guys remember that? So if that's true, and it is, and putting aside what glorifying God, I've told you, but I, so go back and listen to the recordings. But putting aside what that is, we all admit that the Bible does teach multiple times that that's your overarching purpose to glorify God, bring glory to God, whatever you, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So I think most of us agree that that's the case. So if my purpose is to glorify God, then I have to positively determine that the thing I'm deciding and choosing will achieve that. In other words, I need to ask if it's right and whether or not it's right is determined by whether or not it glorifies God. Not just it avoids doing something wrong. So the one way you see that we get this, we think incorrectly about this, is the way we formulate our reasons, in the way that we create our rationale for what we choose to do. We often, too often ask what's wrong with it rather than what's right with it. Namely, it advances the glory of God. And I can positively tell you that, and I can demonstrate to you that this decision is helping me to do that, and that's how I thought about it. That's the way we should think. But you can see we get it wrong because of the way we approach, first of all, our reasons. Here's the second one. You can see that we get it wrong in the way we approach rules. Reasons and rules. So how do we normally approach rules? Rules keep us from doing something wrong. That's the way we approach most of our rules. And there are a lot of rules that are don't do this, don't do that. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. So the Bible has a lot of thou shalt nots, things you don't do, stated negatively, meaning not, negated. But here's what we easily miss with all of the things you don't do is that all of the don'ts, all of the do-nots, all of the thou shalt nots, all of them, every last one, is designed for another larger rule that's actually not a negation. It's not a don't, thou shalt not. It's what you're supposed to do. So when Jesus is approached in Matthew 22, so which is the greatest among the commandments? 
it, I mean, it's very interesting to me what he chooses. You might think he would choose one of the top ten. You know, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not make for yourself any graven image. You shall not use the name of the Lord. Your, you shall not murder. You shall not use none of them. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. What are your rules? Your rules are positive. They're what it is you're trying to achieve. And the negative rules, the things you don't do, are all subsumed under that. You see, the reason you don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain is because you love Him. The reason you have no other gods before Him is because you love Him. The reason you do not make any graven image is because you love Him. All of the things you don't do are all because of the thing you're supposed to do. The rules are all supposed to be seen in this positive way. And then Jesus says, this is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he kind of plucks that out of Leviticus, you know, the third book. I mean, Exodus 20 gives us the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5, 5 repeats the Ten Commandments. But Jesus goes to Leviticus 19 and verse 18 and says, love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes that. Love God, love neighbor. And there are all these things then, if you love your neighbor, that you won't do. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. All of those things fall into line if you do those two things. And that's why Jesus says on these two commands, hang all the law and the prophets. This is just an aside. I'm just going to kick this dog as I go, and then I'll move on. I said kick the dog. You guys know I'm not a big dog guy. Should I kick something else? If you guys got something else, I should kick. So Jesus says, quotes Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. And I have heard preaching over and over again over the years that says Jesus gives us three commands. Love God, love neighbor, love yourself. And Jesus never, the Bible never tells you to love yourself. You know, because as fallen people, that's like a real problem for us. <laughs> we like really love, we're, we love ourselves. You know, Kim's nieces, I, I think I told you this some time ago, they uh, were at a Luther, little Lutheran school years ago, and they put on a, a play, and they were singing, and they were dressed up like sheep. And they were singing Isaiah 53, we like sheep, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray. You guys know that? But they, it was really clever. They were singing this refrain, we like sheep. We like sheep. We like sheep because sheep is what we are. <laughs> we like sheep because we're sheep. That's pretty clever because it's true. We like us. And it, we're really not people who don't love ourselves enough according to the Bible. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, look, your answer is not to think less of yourself, it's to think of yourself less. We think of ourselves a lot. And we think about our lot a lot. And so there's not three commands. Jesus did the math. He said on these two commands, hang all the law and the prophets. There are two commands there, love God, love others. All right, 
So I kicked that dog. And you can see that we think about this wrongly because of the way we pursue our reasons, our rationale, the way we look at rules. And here's the third thing, the way we think of righteousness. Reasons, rules, and righteousness. And how do we normally think of righteousness? I'm righteous if I don't do something wrong. But see, the way the Bible thinks about righteousness is you do what's right. So Jesus says, you know, we call it the golden rule, do to others what you would have them to do to you. And then when people discover, when I tell them that, you know, a few hundred years before that, Confucius gave what is sometimes called the silver rule. Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. That's Confucius. And then Christians go, I can't believe it. Jesus plagiarized Confucius? He stole from Confucius? But those are radically different things. You could obey Confucius' negative dictum. Do not do that. You could obey that by doing nothing. Just do no harm. I mean, theoretically, just stay in one place the rest of your life, don't interact with anybody, and you've done nobody else any harm. But if you did that with the golden rule, you would positively be sinning because it's a requirement to pursue righteousness. Do the right thing. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. So do you have to be good to go to heaven? That's always a conundrum for people because, you know, we talk about, hey, works don't get us to heaven. And so, no, I mean, because I'm not good. There is no one good. No, not one, the Bible says. So, no, you don't have to be good to go to heaven. But the problem is you actually got to be perfect to go to heaven. The question is, how do I get this perfection? And I get this perfection from the perfect, righteous life of Jesus. He did everything right. We think that Jesus is only sinless. He was sinless. He never did anything wrong. But he's more than that. He did everything positively right. And when you come to him, you get his righteousness. So the way we think about our reasons, the way we think about rules, the way we think about righteousness all shows that we've got this what's wrong with it sort of mindset. And our decisions, both about life and about character, both categories have to be made with a different approach. Page 23. They need to be made by conviction. In the middle of page 23 last week, and from 2 Timothy 3:16, I said that that word rebuking, you see it there, all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching and convicting. Rebuking there is the Greek word for convicting. And then correcting and training in righteousness. So I am convicted, like and it's a legal idea, I'm convicted of what it is I'm either committing or omitting. You see, this positive righteousness idea means that there are sins of omission. Have you, so have you ever thought about that? We think of sin as what you commit. But, and so we, we play with it sometimes, like you see a bumper sticker that says, commit random acts of kindness. I mean, that's, that's a good way to, it is helpful though. Because it's saying, you, you don't just commit something that's wrong, do something wrong, 
you're actually supposed to do things that are right, and you can sin. Now, hear this. You can sin in our, we can sin in our failure to do the right things. That's a sin of omission. And James says this, I'm quoting, he that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Those are sins of omission we know we're supposed to do, but we don't. So we've got to take that approach to conviction. Yes, conviction convicts of I'm doing the wrong thing, but conviction also works this way, I'm failing to do the right thing. And the Bible serves to do that so that, bottom of page 23, I can develop convictions about things I won't do and the things I, I need to do. And I do that through these two categories at the bottom of page 23. I obey the precepts of Scripture and I apply the principles of Scripture. Those two words, precepts and principles, one and two there, those are the two key words in those, precept, principle. The idea with the precept is it's kind of a direct command. It's telling you what to do or not to do. And you obey it. Those are not the ones we have the biggest problem with. I mean, we're sinful and so but we at least know what they are. But it's the development of the principles that's more challenging because those are not directly given. You have to work out principle, you have to work out an approach to life circumstances based upon principles that Scripture gives you. So apply, you obey the precepts, that's fairly straightforward, even though sinful people don't do it as much as we should. But you have to apply principles, and that is a little more challenging to figure out, which means you've got to ask the right questions. Don't ask what's wrong with it. Top of page 24. Ask what's right with it. And so how do I, how do, I do that? How do I develop the, the principles? Now, look at that next one. Develop a, a personal grid of biblical principles for our, for our choices. And here are some examples. In Romans 14, you got people arguing over food issues. And then in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, you've got controversy over whether or not we should eat meat that has been previously offered to an idol. And if you take that second one, meat offered to, to idols, I mean, is that okay for a Christian to do? And you've got to develop a conviction about that. But you have to do it, in this case, those three chapters, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, based upon something where Paul doesn't give you, he doesn't give you a straight yes or no, really. He gives you principles upon which you have to make a decision. And if you remember, he, he says, hey, love is... Love is better than knowledge. Because in the King James it says knowledge puffs up. Do you guys remember that? So that, you know, you may be somebody who knows that this is just meat. And even though it's been previously offered to an idol, it's still just meat. And you also know that the pagan temple is just that. These people don't have any idea what they're doing. They're clueless. And they're wasting some perfectly good meat. So I can go ahead and eat this meat and don't waste the meat. But what if I've got somebody, Paul says, who doesn't know what you know about that? 
And as a result of that, their conscience is bothered. And yet, because you know more than they do, perhaps you've been a Christian longer than they have, they're emboldened to participate in eating this meat even though it violates their conscience because of what you're doing. And his, what Paul says to do there is, in fact, he says of himself, if it causes a problem for my brother, I will not eat meat for the rest of my life. And what's the principle that's in operation there? Love. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, I'm going to defer to the best interest of somebody else on this principle of love, loving somebody else. You go to chapter 9, he gives examples from his own life where he's had to do this. Things that he has a right to do, but he's given up for the sake of other people and some larger principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, do I not have a right to take a wife with me? He says that on my journeys, but I've chosen not to do that. I did not use that right. Why? Because I can advance the mission. I've got more time to do it this way, but I could, but I put something above that. Do I not have the right to take pay, he says. And in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about the, the fact that those who give the gospel and teach God's word should be remunerated for, for their labor and all that. But he says, I've chosen not to do that. I did not use this right. And then you go into chapter 10. He repeats something that he said way back in chapter 6. He quotes the Corinthians in the King James saying, everything is lawful for me. And then he repeats them saying that everything is lawful for me. In other words, now I'm in Christ, none of this stuff matters, it's all, I can do whatever, but out. But Paul's response to there, everything is lawful, it's okay for me to do it, but not everything is beneficial, not everything is constructive. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, and he says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in the context of this whole meat offered to idols discussion, he says it in, verses, in verse 24. Now, with all that, take a look at that extra sheet that we gave you. So, I told you that John MacArthur put this list together. I don't know out of what resource I got this, but I stole it from him. But I footnoted it. At the bottom, it says, from Pastor John MacArthur. So, I feel better about having stolen it because I put a footnote there. I admit I'm a thief, therefore... My conscience is clear. And I also told you last week that MacArthur is the king of alliteration. So every one of these starts with an E. And the reason that that earlier little riff that I did for you on reasons, I did reasons, rules, and righteousness, is I just want you to know I'm sort of a junior John MacArthur, okay? <laughs> I mean, I can alliterate three points. He's got like 10 here, but... But they, I find them to be helpful. You should ask yourself, is something expedient? Will it be based on 1 Corinthians 6.12? That's the one I just mentioned. You know, the Corinthians say all things are lawful. But in the King James, it says not everything's expedient. Will it be spiritually profitable is what's meant by that. Some things can be wrong if they keep you from doing things that enhance your spiritual life. Is it going to be spiritually profitable? Well, if I'm spending a bunch of time doing this, 
then there's some positive things that God's told me to do that I'm displacing, perhaps with that. So I need to think about that. Maybe I would be able to be involved in the Lord's work as he commands me to do more if I did less of some other things. Edification. Will it put you on the path of greater spiritual maturity? Is this thing that I'm investing time, talent, treasure in helping me to do that? Excess, will it hinder you as you run the Christian race? Being out late on Saturday night is not a sin. Of course, depending on what you're doing. But, but assuming you're not you know, sinning in it and you're in some wholesome activity, it in itself is not a sin, but it may not be the best choice if it leaves you too tired to concentrate on Sunday morning. True? So, next week, 9 o'clock, I'm calling all of you. <laughs> Find out what you're up to. Enslavement. Will it bring you under its control? We know it's wrong to be controlled by drink or drugs. It's also wrong to be controlled by music or sports or TV. You know, I've got to, I, I, I have to ask these questions. I have to ask this question about sports. I have to ask this question about my interest just in current affairs and politics. Am I spending too much time on that? And you've got to do the same thing. With regard to the drink piece, the Bible condemns drunkenness. Deacons can only be deacons if they are not, to use King James language, given to much wine. So it's not a prohibition against all wine, but they cannot be given to much wine. Now, for myself, I don't drink. I've never drank. I've never had a drop except the one Kim gave me. Remember I told you that story where we were out with some friends and we were having after dinner and I, you know, I wanted something kind of sweet tasting and I was holding forth, talking as I am wont to do. And so I just took a glance kind of and the waitress comes and I go, hey, yeah, give me, one, I'll have one of those Irish cream. I mean, cream sounded sweet, sort of dessertish, but it was also a drink. And then when it came, you know, I took a drink and it like burned my throat. And Kim saw me wince, and so she took a drink and immediately she spits it out. She says, it's alcohol. <laughs> and I go, how do you know what alcohol tastes like? <laughs> I didn't know it was alcohol. You're the one who knows it was alcohol. So I think she married me on false pretenses. She said... We both said we've never drank, but I'm, I don't know. And I highly recommend the no drinking thing. I highly recommend it because you don't know, you see, you never get drunk if you don't drink. And you never know if you're going to be a drunk if you don't drink. You never know if you are susceptible to alcoholism. You'll never know it if you don't drink. And so I recommend you don't do that. I'm just going to let that sit there for about our final two minutes. I'm not going to say anything else. No, look at uh, equivocation. Are you using your freedom in Christ as a cover for catering to evil, sinful desires? Honestly, evaluate your motives. And, you know, so the Corinthians are doing this. All things are lawful for me. I have freedom in Christ. Who are you to judge me? Well, okay, I'm not, 
you'll stand or fall before the Lord. And so my job is just to tell you what the, the scriptures say, but you need to ask yourself whether or not you're using your freedom as a cover to do things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Encroachment, will it violate the Lordship of Christ in your life? Don't let others talk you into doing what you do not think the Lord would have you do. Are you setting a good example by doing this? Is this a good thing for your outreach to non-believers, evangelism? Will it cause non-believers to respect what Christians do and see a difference in our lives? Oh man, do Christians need to get a hold of that in 2022? In the cultural and political realms, thinking about the face that we're putting forward to people, but in everything. Emulation, would Jesus do it? Exaltation, will it glorify God? So I think helpful principles. Our final lesson is next week. And our final lesson next week, we're going to look at, we'll give you a handout that looks at some of the top passages, verses in the Bible that people wrongly use regarding decision-making and will attempt to put a proper interpretation on those, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the blessings of this day. I thank you for these dear friends and these brothers and sisters who are here and desirous to learn of you and grow uh, in you, to please you with our lives and all of the, the decisions, the life decisions, the character decisions that comprise those lives. And so I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for instructing us with precepts and principles from your word. Help us to obey your precepts and help us to wisely apply your principles, doing that today and this week. We ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day in the name of Jesus. Amen.